Welcome everyone to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today, we're excited to have Surfrider Foundation CEO Chad Nelson on the podcast. Uh, Surfrider is the group that filed suit to block tech billionaire Vinod Kozla from closing off public access to Martin's Beach near Half Moon Bay. Uh, So Kozla bought the land surrounding the beach back in 2008 and closed the only road leading to the beach from Highway 1, and that caused a big public uproar. Uh, And so Surfrider sued, and after about six years uh, winding through the legal system, the U.S. Supreme Court this week declined to hear the case, which means that Kozla has two options now. He can either open the gate and let people in, or he can file for a new permit with the California Coastal Commission to keep the gate closed. Uh, And that would almost certainly prompt more legal proceedings and drag out the issue for several more years. Um, So even though it was uh, sort of a victory for uh, environmental uh, advocates this week, um, it's really sort of up in the air what happens next. Um, So to better understand what's been going on at Martins Beach, um, what all the latest developments in the case mean, uh, and also why public access to the coast in California has become such a big issue in pockets up and down the state, uh, I called up Chad. Well, so Chad... Are you guys at Surfrider this week celebrating, or are you battening down the hatches, preparing for the next kind of battle or showdown, or what's the vibe <laughs> like over there this week? Oh, it's definitely celebratory. Um, we've been working on this you know, campaign to open up access to Martin's Beach since 2008, so it's been uh, a long time coming, and... Um, you know, the decision for the Supreme Court not to take this case this week was great news for us. Um, I can get into it in more detail, but, you know, we've won sort of in the courts at every step of the way. So um, this was great validation that uh, we're on the right side of the law in this issue. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was reading an article, I think it was in the New York Times. There's a reporter there who spent some, some one-on-one time with Kozla. Yeah. And she um, she had an interesting take on this, which was that given her past conversations with Vinod Kozla, the property owner, he should be happy that the Supreme Court didn't take on the case because in their conversations, he's told her that he doesn't that he didn't want the Supreme Court to take on the case <laughs> and that uh, because he doesn't want to unravel the Coastal Act and right. have everybody, you know, have it come under attack. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting bit of rationale for the rest of us to wrap our minds around and i'm curious what you make of that if you if you buy that or if, if well i mean i guess we all vote with our feet at some point and uh if that was really the case then he didn't have to spend the time money and energy to petition the supreme court right, right. <laughs> you know he hired uh one of the best supreme court lawyers in the country to argue his case so he certainly i you know i think i my sense is that you know, he felt conflicted because he wants to win, but he, the consequences of that win, I think, were, you know, pretty large. And so, but yeah, he had a, he's all the way through this, you know, Coastal's had a really easy solution, which is to uh, follow the California Coastal Act requirements for beach access. And he's chosen not to do that. So it comes off as a little disingenuous, in my opinion. Hmm. 
Yeah, have you ever, I was curious, have you ever met Kozla, or has anybody from Surfrider met Kozla face-to-face? No, we have not. <clears throat> um, he's made it pretty clear along the way that he's not interested in that. Um, I, he's even blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> the ultimate snub. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the early days of this fight, when the access was when the road was first closed and he hired armed guards to, you know, block it. Um, it wasn't even clear who the property owner was, and it wasn't until the initial legal filings that we found out that the Martin's Beach LLC one and two were in fact owned by him. So it, it appears he's been doing a you know his best effort to sort of you know keep a distance from us and from even the the fight in the beginning. So, but yeah, he uh, he we. At the start of this effort, um, you know, we reached out to him and suggested that there's a way that he can get his privacy and some of the things he understandably might be interested in on his property and still provide beach access. And he, his response was essentially, uh, talk to my lawyers. Ah, okay. So you guys haven't had any... Uh, no, no interaction. Okay. No, and, you know, we, we, we certainly at the start were looking for a you know, a amicable solution to this that provides the public their access and him his interest, but he expressed no interest in finding that compromise. Got it. And so that was when you guys were first having conversations back in 2012, 2013? Probably 2010 to 2000, you know, that was when we, when the access was first closed and um, both the county and the Coastal Commission kind of reached out to Coastal suggesting he that the, he required permits. Okay. So I actually, so um, I remember this pretty vividly because I was actually a reporter uh, at the Half Moon Bay Review, the local newspaper. Oh, yeah. Uh, Great local paper. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, so I was a reporter there from 2008 to 2010, and I remember driving down the coast for another assignment like in Pescadero in August of 2008 and driving past the that turnoff for Martin's Beach and the that old kind of rustic billboard that said welcome to Martin's Beach and looks yes. like it was painted in the the 50s or the 60s yep. or something was it wasn't painted over but it had like a it had a like a tar, like a dark tarp that somebody had pulled over it <laughs> yep. um, and the gate was closed and I, I don't I hadn't remembered seeing the gate closed and that was in 2008, and I went back to uh, my editor, and I was like 21 years old, and um, so didn't you know? I was like, hey, I went back to, down to Martin's Beach, and somebody like closed over the sign, da da da, and we did a story then, and there was a there had been a sign put on the gate as well when we went back and took a look that said like beach access closed. Um, right. Yep. Like, we have photos of that. Yeah, and it was just so it was just funny. I was like doing some background research for this, and I was like, you know, I remember this, and I think maybe that I wrote the first story about what was happening in Martin's Beach. And at the time, we didn't know who the landowner... No, nobody did. ...property purchaser was, right? It was just Martin's Beach LLC. Correct. Um, and I actually went on and spoke to uh, the family that had owned the place. Uh, the, the, the Dean s- family. The Dean fa- Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and spoke to the son, uh, who was kind of the property manager at the time, and he didn't even know who had purchased it, uh... He just rec- they just received some like official uh, letterhead or something that said the property has been purchased because it was up for sale for so long and nobody was interested and they kept dropping the price. Um, 
And then one day it was just transferred and like it was a mystery for years um, about who actually purchased it. Um, yeah, it, and you know, it's interesting because it, it's actually a really important part of the story, I think, is um, which is, you know, if it wasn't for local watchdogs, whether it was you as a local reporter, you know, who knew that that was a beach access or our local um, chapter volunteers and activists who, you know, used to go down there with some regularity who noticed it and decided to do something about it, um, you know, we probably, he probably would have gotten away with closing the gate and uh, losing access, you know, by the time we figured it out, it might have been too late. So um, it's really a testament, in my opinion, to the, the value of local watchdogs up and down the coast. Well, that's nice of you to say. I mean, I would like to take all the credit for uh, blocking this case from going to the Supreme Court. I don't think that would be good for Californians. But, uh, but really, I mean, surfers are a pretty uh, outspoken and proactive bunch, at least in my experience. I mean, I feel like surfers have this kind of reputation of being whatever, like sort of, um, you know, hazy stoners or something. Right. Uh, but like the surfers that I know are <laughs> like highly in tune with what's going on all along the coast, whether it's pollution or it's red tides or it's, um, you know, beach access or it's development issues. Like they seem to have their finger on the pulse for sure. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, I, you know, I think we've been trying to combat the stereotype created by Spicoli, <laughs> you know, uh, as an amazing of a character as that was in Fast Times. Um, but you're right. I mean, surfers are often up before the sunlight. Um, they are an incredibly avid group of ocean users. Um, surfers spend more time in the ocean than any other user group. Um, you know, and a lot of surfers surf 100 days a year, and they're up combing the coasts. And, you know, surfers that live locally visit these beaches with a lot of regularity. They're really tuned in to the tides, to sand movement, um, to, you know, weather conditions, winds, swell direction. So they really are, you know, sort of local natural historians and scientists. Um, so they're, they're quick to notice changes. Um, and be, because a lot of surfers have a lot of history at places, they also kind of know what's, what's within the uh, normal variation and what, what might be something different. So, yeah. you know, from our experience, they, are, they really are great. Um, you know, they're in tune with the coasts. They understand, I think, more than people recognize what what processes are driving the way our coasts uh, behave and uh, are often first to notice when there's a change. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask, I wanted to talk a little bit, a, a little more broadly about coastal access issues in California because Martins Beach has gotten so much press. Yeah. Um, I think partially that's probably because the narrative is sort of uh, an appealing one, um, maybe, yep. or, or an easy one for people to understand. It's like a tech billionaire trying to buy his chunk of the coast, close out the locals. Um, yeah. But this is, I mean, this is an issue that I've read about basically my whole life. Um, yes. Like, uh, the, the one that always comes to mind is Hollister Ranch in Santa Barbara. Um, but recently there's been the issue of um, the, uh, the, the private district in... Uh, at Opal Cliffs in Santa Cruz. Yep, Capitola, sure. Yeah, yep. yeah that's closing. They, they basically uh, built a, a big iron fence with a gate 
around the only point of access to this beach yep. and uh, charge people like a hundred dollar membership per year and that gives them a key to the gate yeah um, and that one's constantly being bandied about and then there's I mean, but, but they're all over the place. There's, like, Paradise Cove, where it's basically the same thing. People are just charging. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think it's 20 bucks a head for park. It's, like, a parking fee or a gate fee or whatever. Right. Um, and this is something that's been around for a long time. So uh, I'm just curious, like, what you see as maybe uh, the common thread between them all that sort of links these together. Like, why is there so much of this happening on the coast when we have the coastal act that basically mandates that every that this can't happen and that everybody sure. should have like equal access to the beach. Why is this yeah. still such an issue everywhere? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's interesting because there was, you know, beach access was actually one of the drivers for the uh, establishment of the coastal act, passing of the coastal act and the establishment of the coastal commission sort of in the, in the mid to late seventies. Um, there was a, pretty um famous project called sea ranch up on the sonoma coast sonoma county yeah 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 which you know was was built during that time and closed off a huge swath of the coastline um and that you know combined with some other issues like the 1969 Santa barbara oil spill and uh the construction of dana point harbor which destroyed a surf spot um I think these were all catalysts that ultimately drove um, the passage of the Coastal Act, and it was kind of like, all right, California, the development pressure in, in California and the amount of use is getting to a point where we need to start balancing development with conservation, you know, which is sort of the charge of the Coastal Act at the at the highest level. Um, and, and, you know, that, that started a, a permit process that would prevent you know, privatization of the coast. Um, by that point in 1976, there was already uh, a lot of privatization of the coast that occurred. So, you know, um, Hollister Ranch had already been established, yeah. Paradise Cove. I, I live in um, Laguna Beach down in Southern California, and there's two private beaches and communities in my town. There's a couple in San Clemente. Um, so there, you know, it was already starting to happen, and you know, it's. I, I guess it's somewhat easy to understand why um, there is value and exclusivity. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's the real estate values in California are so huge that there's a lot of pressure for developers to, you know, build on the coast and try to make it exclusive. Um, and I think that's why the Coastal Act is so important. So, you know, if you look at the last 40 years um, since the Coastal Act was passed, you know, beach access in the state of California is actually quite good and better than many other states across the country. Right. Um, and, you know, that's really a testament to the Coastal Act. Um, and a lot of the issues that you mentioned, so, you know, Opal Cliffs has a complicated history that dates back to those early days of the Coastal Commission. Um, that land was private and then kind of became part of a HOA ownership, um, you know, probably should have been established as a public park, like other places, like um, Steamer Lane, where that, those issues may have been resolved. And, um, you know, so now it's a question of, you know, there's a lot of history going back to that fee being charged for maintenance. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so it's, it's not an easy one by any stretch. Um, and it is certainly, um, you know, uh, an interesting case where it's quasi open, but not really. And some people have access and some people don't. And, um, you know, there's certainly strong opinions on both sides on, on that one. 
um, you know, and, and same obviously with Hollister Ranch has been a um, very controversial project, partly because it's a, such a huge swath of coast, right. partly because there's great surf in there that awesome. people can't get to. Uh, and on the flip side, you know, that was one of the that was one of the cases like Sea Ranch that was was done prior to the Coastal Act. So the you know the legal grounds for for opening some of these places that were closed, privatized before the Coastal Act is is challenging for sure. Um, you know, our focus is in meanwhile is I think there's a lot of cases where it's pretty obvious that they're vi- like this case at Martin's Beach. They knew fell full well what the requirements were going in. The Coastal Act was clear, uh, and they just chose to ignore those rules. Well, you know, and yeah. And so, uh, but yeah. So I think you know. I think if you look, there's certainly some cases where the coast has been closed, but on the whole, California has actually done remarkably well. In fact, I think a lot of us take beach access for granted in the state. I knew I did growing up, um, and. Only through my work at Surfrider have I realized that if not for a lot of advocates in the public uh, up and down the coast of California, would it maintain this way? You know, it's this constant tug of war between those who want to close the coast off and those who want to keep it open for the public. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so when I look at a lot of what sort of doing uh, a broader look at all of these issues, one of the through lines that I see is uh, this, you know, evocation of history. Like um, Hollister Ranch, Sea Ranch, these places were sort of grandfathered in because they were owned privately before the Coastal Act. And that brings me back to Martin's Beach because my understanding is that, I mean, the, the issue is far from over. And my understanding is that sure. I think Kozla is maybe going to lean a little bit harder into the uh, Guadalupe-Hidalgo Treaty of 1848, which comes yeah. up now and again in, in their arguments. And so basically I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and whether you think that's a concern for you guys going forward, or, you know, a concern you know, for the, the case going forward. I have to admit that I don't know the specific details of that case the the group that he that sued him originally over that issue was different than us because there was there was a different there was a couple there was two different lawsuits that took place there was one over the the treaty of hidalgo and then there was ours which was based on the coastal act um i believe but i would have to double check that you know he won the initial Kosla won the initial lawsuit over that <clears throat> sort of that Mexican land treaty issue, but he lost an appeal. That's what I think. I think that happened. So, so, so I, you know, whether he now tries to take that case uh, further, you know, I don't know. Um, what I hope he does is he applies for a permit with the Coastal Commission, which is what this was all about in the first place. Right. And you know the Coastal Commission and Coastal can come up with something that is reasonable and provides public access and, uh, you know, can can <clears throat> solve some of his issues, which, you know, to be honest, aren't that clear what he wants besides to close the road. Yeah. Well, I, I just bring it up because that's uh, the, the sort of precedent that's at stake or that's under question, right? 
in these cases is the Coastal Act came around in the 70s, and, how, and, and can we really apply it retroactively or not? And in some cases, it kind of has been. Like, there's a settlement that was reached recently, I think, at Hollister Ranch. Um, yes, around the YMCA issue, yeah. Yeah, <coughs> but there's, also, there's all these weird sort of, I mean, it's not, it's not quite a victory because I think in the settlement there are these bizarre, like, well, if you have a private boat, you can boat into the beach. Right. And maybe we will establish a parking area two miles away, and so you can park your car and then, like, sort of hike in on this one path to the beach. And so it's just, it's, it's not, it's still not the cut and dry, straightforward. Yes, we'll have a road down to the beach with a parking area with public access. And, right. And I, I get the sense that the, you know, the reason why why we reach those kinds of concessions is because we still haven't figured out what the historic precedent here is. And so that's what makes me wonder about the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty argument. Is like, are people going to take that? I mean, are people going to take that seriously? You think? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I, my sense was that you know. Uh, that that's not that strong of an argument. And again, I'm not really an expert. You know, I think that, you know, you talk about the YMCA issue at Hollister, I think, you know, which is another case that we surfwriters not deeply involved in, but I, I know a fair amount about it, which is, you know, the, the YMCA, you know, had property on the ranch, um, Hollister Ranch, when they sold that property, I think, to a private owner, um, you know, there was this question about this sort of, you know, access rights for education. And so I think some people are confused that that, that settlement with the YMCA is actually about public access to the Hollister Ranch. My understanding is that it's really just about educational access to the ranch. Right. So, you know, this is about whether or not nonprofits or education groups can, you know, bring people down to those beaches for, for educational, you know, tours or programs, um, you know, and, and, you know, the settlement agreement did seem a little outrageous on its face that people have to boat in. I, yeah. Obviously, that's sort of unsafe, especially for a bunch of kids. And, you know, and it seems like that case is going to go probably end up back in court and they'll, you know, hopefully be able to find something reasonable that is fair and, and sort of honors those original rights. Um, that said, it's, it's, you know, it is really interesting because, you know, property law and land use rights are, are a, both an ancient and a complex sort of area of law. And you find with all of these cases, you know, almost every beach access case has some nuance to it that, that complicates things. And, you know, my sense is that none of these issues will, will fundamentally change, or at least I hope they don't, fundamentally change sort of like access rights up and down the whole coast. Okay. That was my... That's, that's my general sense is that, you know, they're, they're, you know, they talk about these rights as being a bundle of rights and you can kind of think of each right as a stick. And so, you know, you, you, you win some of them or not all of them or not every place had them all in the first place. It, it, uh-huh. it is, it is, it is complex and it's, part of the reason why I think these things take 10 years to solve. Yeah. Well, so that may, it makes me wonder whether you think that this case uh, with Vinod Kozla was particularly, what, like, was it particularly important or significant for California? Or is it just another, you know, kind of one-off case yeah. that you felt needed to be fought? No, I do think it actually was 
significant and precedent setting for for a couple of different reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, this was a place where the you know access rights were pretty firmly established and had a hundred year history, um, and it was pretty clear that COSA, you know, chose to ignore the requirements that the county and the state had put on him for that project. Um, and had he won those, you know, it would signal to other property owners up and down the state that they could do the same thing. You know, and had his case gone to the Supreme Court and he prevailed, you know, it would have certainly had the potential to weaken, you know, the enforcement rights of the Coastal Commission and the Coastal Act. Um, you know, we don't know. If it, you know, it's hard to speculate if he would have won or we would have won, or if he had won and we lost, how narrowly the ruling would be. So you know, it's hard to say what the outcomes will be. I mean, we're we're happy we don't have to face that, and yeah. you know, the you know, we we sued him at the superior court, sort of the lowest court level, and won on this, um, and he appealed it, and we won that appeal. Um, so that pretty firmly established that you know, we were in the right. And um, and then he appealed it to the California Supreme Court, which didn't take it. They felt it was settled. And now the Supreme Court felt the same way. So, you know, to me, that says, okay, you know, anytime from our perspective, the, the, the sort of rights of the Coastal Act are, are defended and maintained, you know, that sends a signal that, hey, you've got to comply. <laughs> And two, you know, that the, the courts are going to enforce the Coastal Act. And so, you know, that's why we think it's significant. And it sends a, a, a signal to others that want to privatize the coast that, you know, the law's not on their side. And B, Surfrider or other beach access groups are going to be there to defend the public's rights to beach access. Yeah. What, so it makes me wonder, though. I mean, obviously not all property owners are as... Um, principled, let's say, and well-funded as COSLA. Um, sure. But... Quote-unquote principled. <laughs> sure. Uh, but, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't get the sense that this has reached its conclusion. Right. Well, right. I don't think so either. And so, I, you know, the, the, the next step is for COSLA to, if he wants to close the gate, you know, his choice is now, or he can leave the gate open. Um, and and the issue solved, he can apply to the Coastal Commission for a coastal development permit to close the gate. And, you know, the Coastal Commission will have to determine what they think is acceptable and not. Um, my guess is that he probably won't agree with what they want. Um, and so that could lead this down another sort of... Um, More lost fight. Fight. Uh, the the one the, a couple significant things now the access is open and the gates required to be open while we fight for a decade instead of being closed um you know so we've kind of flipped the whole thing on its head and now he's going to be on the he's going to be on the side of having to you know do the state instead of an organization like surfrider using our resources to maintain the access so it kind of puts the it, a, it keeps the beach open, and B, it puts the burden on, on him to close it versus the burden on us to open it. Yeah, interesting. So I, you know, so I think that's, a, that's also a big win. And, you know, if, the, if he closes the gate now, the, either the Coastal Commission can find him or he could be held in contempt of court or both. So, 
uh, I think that's a big win for the public. And, you know, we've been, the gate's been closed while this fight's been going on, and now it will be open. So, you know, and I don't know if he ends up suing the Coastal Commission over the permit, how quickly that goes back to our legal wins or if it's a separate fight. I haven't heard the legal analysis on that yet. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, and they might say, well, yeah, you've already lost this, so no, you you can't fight the permit. You have to. You know, I don't know the details of that, but. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Chad, I wanted to ask you just generally, with all your experience working on these issues, what have you, what do you feel like you've learned about beach access in California or how people conceive of beach access in California? There seems to be to me, it always feels a little bit uh, like there are two sides, right? There are the people who, there's kind of the, like localism plays into it a little bit. There's kind of the locals that feel like this belongs to them. And then there is the the average visitor who just wants to go to the beach and feels like they should be entitled to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it. and I live in Laguna Beach, um, which is, you know, a, a little coastal community that the front row homeowners in my town, their homes are worth millions and millions of dollars. Um, there's great beach access at the end of every street and a set of stairs that goes down to the beach. And, you know, from all appearances that I can tell, the sort of the, the front row homeowners and the public in the town and the tourists that come visit coexist pretty peacefully. The beaches are clean and safe and it works. Um, and, you know, so I think that's evidence that, it, you know, we, we can have this balance where, where um, you know, the front row homeowners are property are respected and the public gets access. You know, at the end of the day, there's 30 million people in California and only a few who can afford or live on the on that, you know, front row. Yeah. So, you know, our belief is that, you know, the beach and the ocean are public property and the public deserves a right to access them. Um, I, I think that the public does in general sort of assume, you know, I certainly did before I started working at Surfride, that those beach accesses were sort of our God-given right, and they're just there in perpetuity, and uh, of course you can get to the beach, um, and it's only, you know, as I said before, it's only been through my work at Surfrider that I've realized that actually, you know, there are people out there defending those beach access rights yeah. sort of constantly. Um, you know, and I, I understand that the desire for some privacy, and I'm sure that front row homeowners occasionally have people in front of their houses that are obnoxious or litter or, you know, um, disrupt them. And I I guess I kind of feel like that is, you know, also part of the cost of doing business. You, you You know, you knew full well when you bought a house on a public beach that you were, you know, what you were getting into. It's like buying a property uh, next to a park, you know, yeah. you, it's just part of, it comes with the territory, right. um, you know, so, you know, so I think that's sort of my general take on it. I, you know, the coasts and uh, our beaches are also an incredible driver of the economics of our coastal communities. I mean, almost every coastal community in California is driven by tourism. And, uh, you know, tourism requires public access to beaches. Um, so it's good for business. And then, you know, you got into the localism piece. I, I heard a really funny quote. Someone said, uh, you know, an angry local is just someone who doesn't have enough money to go somewhere else. 
<laughs> you know, and I, you know, I thought that was funny because you know I I travel up and down the coast and had had the good fortune to surf beaches, you know, from San Diego to Humboldt, and I'm a visitor at most, and you know, I have a couple in my hometown that are my kind of local spots, and my attitude is like, hey, if we all want to go up, surf up and down the coast, we got to kind of accept that others are going to do the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, one piece of rationale that I've read uh, in, you know, different news articles about these these uh, different cases up and down the coast is that uh, in some cases, these private groups, like I think this is the case at Opal Cliffs um, in Santa Cruz, like the locals feel like there hasn't been enough funding or attention from uh, the local government to sort of maintain the access trail and the beach itself. And so they justify kind of closing it off, sort of privatizing it and charging this fee for maintenance costs, essentially, to keep the access in place, which is kind of, I, I don't know, for me at least when I read that, I'm like, it is good that somebody is paying attention and wants this to be nice. I mean, like a park isn't a park unless somebody is maintaining it that way. Um, and so I guess I sort of, I, maybe I'm a little receptive to that. And I'm curious what you make of that. Yeah, I mean, I, and it's, it, 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 I am too. And I, I think that's where the Opal Cliff thing's a little bit unique. Um, because my understanding is that was originally sort of like a, a private piece of property that was bought by the HOA, you know, the Homeowners Association. So the city wasn't maintaining it because it's private property. So, and I guess there were, you know, arguably problems. And so the the HOA would, um, you know, do a couple things. Let's fence it off. Let's put in a key and a fee so we can maintain it. And, you know, in some ways, I think that's a reasonable solution to managing this sort of quasi-private piece of property. Um, that said, I can also understand the other side, which is, hey, why aren't we getting access to this place? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it seems like a possible solution would be, assuming the HOA would be willing, is to give it over to the city or the county as a park, and then the city or county would have the maintenance requirements to, you know, maintain it. Obviously, there's a lot of coastal park in Santa Cruz that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it seems in this case, at least for me, it, it, I, I can kind of see arguments on both sides. Um, if it is private and the HOA is responsible for it, they, I guess they, you know, they should have the right to do what they want. I don't know the specific details, but I know there's also a complicated history with this piece of property in the Coastal Commission, like dating back to the early 80s where I think maybe the Coastal Commission in its early days kind of agreed to allow for this arrangement with the fee and the key. And I think maybe in retrospect, people are thinking that wasn't such a good deal for the public. Right. And I think now uh, the district that runs, that operates the gate is, (laughs) has it, you know, there's been so much press around it that suggests that the Coastal Commission is no longer happy that they're kind of resistant to the idea of sitting down at the negotiating table because they feel like they're going to, they already feel like they're going to lose. Like the die, the die has been cast for them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I mean, that, that, uh, I mean, I think the coastal commission's position is pretty clear. So at this point, so yeah, I mean, um, you know, and it's, I, frankly, I, you know, I, I know that this is 
you know, the, the locals who use that place, of course they don't want it to have more access and more people. I, I understand there are more people in the water surfing if you're a surfer. I sort of get that. But um, if it is intended to be public, and you know, it should be. And, and if, the, if it's really about maintenance, you know, there's solutions around that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. Well, um, Chad, my last question for you was um, just if there are any pieces of legislation that are on your radar these days that are concerning or that you are supporting at the moment, um, any any bills that Surfrider might be working on right now, um, or other sort of beach access issues that you guys are, are thinking hard about at this point. Sure. Yeah, you know, um, we we were really happy to see two important pieces of legislation passed this last legislative session in California having to do with plastics. Um, California passed the Straws on Demand um, bill and a a bill that limits use of polystyrene foam at sort of state parks and facilities, um, both great efforts to reduce plastic pollution. Um, You know, I believe there was a, a sort of a broader beach access bill, but I, I don't know if it's been signed by the governor yet. It was so I, you know, I don't know what the status of that was. The the other bill that did, was vetoed by the governor was, um, which we were sad about, was um, an effort to open what they're calling an office of outdoor recreation at the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been a sort of a new office designed to fund and support outdoor recreation in the state. Um, yeah, they've had them, they've set them up recently in Colorado yep. and maybe Utah or some others. Yeah, Utah, Colorado, North Carolina, and I think Washington State have all set them up. You know, I think it's an acknowledgement of the economic power of outdoor recreation yeah. and, um, you know, in the same way there are sort of offices to support sort of business development, the idea here is how do we continue to support um, outdoor recreation, which is, you know, we're a big fan of that because it, it supports, obviously, um, improved programs and facilities and funding to maintain our parks and, uh, you know, efforts to promote outdoor recreation, which we, which we think is great. Yeah. Yeah, it's also just an acknowledgement that this is, you know, sort of symbolic acknowledgement that this is a priority. Um, yeah. Yeah. One last thing I would add, too, is, you know, the we are still out there fighting a plan to open up, you know, 90% of U.S. waters to offshore drilling. This is a Trump administration effort through the Department of Interior, um, a huge threat to the California coast. Um, the There's been massive public opposition and state opposition, um, but state waters only go out to three miles. So, you know, something could be planned beyond that. Um, and uh, we're waiting for sort of the second round of that plan to come out. It'll probably come out this fall, and um, we will see if, you know, what remains on that map. Presumably it'll be less than the 90%, which, you know, everything, um, but there's, you know, early indications that parts of California may still be on that map. So the threat to offshore drilling we still see is one of the biggest threats to the health of the California coast. Yeah. Um, and uh, we will be doing our best to stop that. Yeah, I think you guys have your work cut out for you on that one. Yep. 
Um, well, anyway, Chad, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, so I just want to say thanks so much for making the time yeah, hey. about this. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been great. I'm, uh, I'm glad we got to touch base. Likewise, thanks for the opportunity. It's obviously uh, beach access is a huge, hugely important issue to the state of California. So I uh, appreciate the time to chat about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, All right. I'll be in touch. Thanks a lot. All right. Excellent. Thanks, Greg. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks very much again to Chad for making the time to come on the podcast. If you want to keep up on what Surfrider has going on, check out surfrider.org. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Coming Home by Ryan Anderson, and it comes courtesy of the Free Music Archive. See you next time.